Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 31, and can be found on page 716 of most of your pew Bibles. Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have them touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, Bonan, and the rest of the worship team. So what does it take to get into your dream college? I know for those of you who are seniors or juniors or maybe even sophomores in high school that this question is hanging over your head like a sword about to slice you. Because the process of getting into college is really stressful and brings a lot of pressure. You have to study hard to get good grades. You have to study hard to do well on the SATs. You have to pad your resume with all kinds of extracurriculars, like serving in a homeless shelter, like maybe getting a part-time job, National Honor Society, sports, et cetera, et cetera. 
You have to make sure that your Facebook and your Twitter feeds are clean so that if the admissions officers look at them, they're not going to find something surprising. And if you're really ambitious, if you really want to differentiate yourself, you have to figure out some way outside of the box that shows how you have a potential for leadership and entrepreneurship that other people don't. It's really stressful. And for those of you guys who are parents, not only are you trying to figure out how to give your kids opportunities so that they can get into a good school and succeed, you have to think about how to pay for the whole thing. Should you open up a 529? How much money should you put in that 529 every year? Because you want your kids to go to a good school, but you also don't want them coming out of school with so much debt on their shoulders that they're going to spend the next 30 years trying to dig out from underneath it. Why do we put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes to getting into a college? Well, it's because education is important. Because education is a foundation for doing things that we want to do in life. Education is the, is, is the, is the backbone behind success. Getting into a good school can open doors for us in the future. But as we think about what it takes and how much effort we put into getting into a college, whether for ourselves or for our kids, how much do we think about what it takes to enter the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God. We use this word a lot, but what does it exactly mean? Well, the kingdom of God is the rule or the reign of God. The kingdom of God is God's power coming be showing forth more fully in this world. Back in Mark chapter 1, when we started this entire sermon series, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. And what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 1 is that God's power, God's authority, is coming to be displayed more fully in this earth. That God's power is coming to completely overcome all sin, all evil, all suffering, and all death. Tim Keller describes the kingdom of God as the saving and ruling power of God. And so, given who God is, and given the significance of what the kingdom of God means, entering the kingdom of God should be a top priority for us, right? I mean, it should be more important than getting into college. It should be more important than getting a job or getting a promotion. It should be more important than anything else that we could possibly have as a goal in life. And yet, it's something that we don't often think about, right? I mean, we, we do because we're Christians and on Sundays we talk about it, but during most of our weekly, you know, from the day-to-day -day life, it's not something that's in the forefront because it's not something that's right in front of us like getting into college. It's not something that's hanging over us like a sword very clearly, right? And I think also, sometimes we just don't understand what it means to enter the kingdom of God. We have some idea, but it's not very obvious to us how you get into the kingdom of God. Is it, like, is it like getting into college where we have to pad some spiritual resume of ours? Or is it like trying to get a promotion where we have to show that you know, we, we've attained some kind of spiritual responsibility or spiritual competence that means that we should be able to get into the kingdom of God? Well, what we find today is that the kingdom of God is nothing like getting into college, nothing like getting a job or a promotion, nothing like anything else in this world. Because what we see in our passage is that the economy of the kingdom of God is upside down from our expectations. 
and that to enter the kingdom of God, we have to give up everything and become servants. So as we explore what it takes to get into the kingdom of God, I think we first have to further explore what the nature of the kingdom of God is, what this upside-down nature is. Because the valleys of the kingdom of God are upside-down. The economy of the kingdom of God is inverted from the way in which the rest of the world works. Some number of years ago, many years ago, back in 1986, Penn and Teller did a sketch or did an act on Saturday Night Live. Now, for those of you guys who don't know who Penn and Teller is, uh, they're magicians, and they work together, um, and they often mix a lot of humor into their, uh, into their magic act. They're a little bit irreverent. Um, they're a little bit bizarre. And so they were on Saturday Night Live, and they were doing this act. And so they were doing a bunch of tricks, but then partway through, they started doing a series of tricks in which they caused a bunch of different things to levitate. Bagels, muffins, wrenches, light bulbs. And so what you'd see is they'd hold onto an object like this light bulb, and then they'd let go, and the object would rise up from the table only to be kept down from the table by a string. It was really mysterious and really strange. And you, you know, you, of course, like all magic acts, you start to think, how in the world did they do that? Because you know, they did the whole hoop thing showing that there are no wires around actually pulling up the light bulb, right? And so you're thinking, how in the world did they do that? Until at the end of their sketch, the camera panned backwards and you could see their entire set. And what you saw was that during their entire act, they were upside down so that gravity was pointing up from the perspective of the camera instead of down. And so instead of this light bulb you know, rising up, held down by the table, what really was happening was the light bulb was hanging from the table and the camera and, the, and how they looked were upside down. And in the same way, the values of the kingdom of God are upside down in which the last become first. And so as a result, the rules of the kingdom of God are inverted as well. And so we see this in the first story in our passage, right, where some people bring some children to Jesus. They want Jesus to touch these children. We don't know exactly why they wanted these children to touch, uh, why they wanted Jesus to touch these children. I mean, maybe they wanted Jesus to heal the children like other people that were brought before to Jesus. Maybe they just wanted Jesus to bless these children in the way that, like, uh, Isaac blessed Jacob or Jacob blessed his 12 sons. We don't know why they brought these children. But what we do know is that the disciples try to keep these children from getting to Jesus. And when Jesus saw this, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. This verse is very familiar to many of us who have been Christians for a while, but the meaning is not that clear, right? What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? I mean, maybe it means that we need to receive the kingdom of God with a childlike faith. Maybe what it means is that you know, we need to approach the kingdom of God with the openness and the innocence of children. Maybe it means that, you know, just like children depend on their parents 
maybe with complete innocence and openness. Maybe we need to approach God with this openness and this childlike wonder when it comes to trusting in God. But the problem with that view is it's based on our own cultural assumptions with respect to what childhood means. It's based on our own, equa- our own cultural assumption that childhood is equated with innocence. And that's not a connection that people in the first century would have made. So we have to put on our first century hats, if everyone, you know, grab your first century hat and put it on, and ask the question, how did people in the first century view children? Well, people in the first century saw children as a marginalized demographic, just like women or slaves or the poor or the disabled. Children were seen to be in a lower social class, right? I mean, children were, didn't really bring anything valuable to society, right? I mean, they weren't doing anything valuable in terms of work. They weren't contributing to society. And so just like the poor or slaves, they were seen as being below those who were adults, those who actually were doing something to help the overall society. And so because children were dependent on adults, children were often exploited or dominated. I mean, this isn't to say that, you know, people didn't care about their kids, because people did see, you know, they did value children for their potential. But what this is to say is that children and slaves were often seen to be almost synonymous when it came to you know, how they were viewed within the, the context of the Roman household. And so really, when we look at what the passage is saying, what Jesus is really saying when he says we have to receive the kingdom of God like a child, it's that we have to receive the kingdom of God like a servant, like someone who's been brought low, like someone whose social standing is not one of wealth or one of uh, uh, influence, but one down low like a slave or a servant. And we can see this back in our previous chapter in Mark. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then what does Jesus do? He takes a little child into his arms because the little child is Jesus' illustration of what it means to be the very last, of what it means to be the servant of all. And the funny thing is, even though Jesus just said this the previous chapter, the disciples still haven't learned this upside-down economy of the kingdom. They still haven't learned that the valleys of the kingdom of God are upside down because they're trying to prevent these children from reaching Jesus. They think the children are beneath Jesus, that the children are not worth Jesus' time, that Jesus' time is way too valuable to be spent on these lowly children. The disciples still haven't learned this lesson, that to receive the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to receive the kingdom of God like a child, and you have to receive those who are low like children. We can compare this to the rich man, right? Whereas the disciples are preventing the children from reaching Jesus, the rich man's able to march right up to Jesus. No one blocks him. Because in the first century, especially amongst the Jewish culture, being rich was often seen as a sign of divine favor, that God blessed this rich man for his character through his riches. And so, you know, being rich, he must be righteous, and therefore he must be able to have access to Jesus. 
But the irony is, the children who have absolutely nothing, who have not one cent to their name, have everything that they need to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, this rich man who has great possessions, this rich man is still lacking. In the economy of the kingdom of God, children and slaves are richer than this rich man who has great possessions. The values of the kingdom of God are upside down, in which the last become first. And so, the economy of the kingdom of God is upside down, and we see that, but what does that mean for us when we consider what does it take to enter the kingdom of God? And to figure that out, we have to look at the story of the rich man in a little bit more detail. Now, the rich man, like I said, marches right up to Jesus, and I think the rich man is really earnest. I think the rich man really wants to know how to inherit the kingdom of God. The rich man comes up to Jesus and he falls on his knees and calls him good teacher. And as Jesus points out, good teacher was a title that most rabbis wouldn't even use, even the best of rabbis, because the word good in Hebrew, throughout the Hebrew Bible, only refers to God. It's a divine quality. And so for the rich man to call Jesus good teacher, you know, he may not have believed in Jesus' divinity, but at least he believed that Jesus was close enough to God, that Jesus was close to God. Hence, he called him good. And so I think this rich man is really earnest. He really believes Jesus knows the answers to how to get into heaven. He really believes, perhaps, that Jesus is even divine. And I think the rich man's earnest in thinking that he's lived a pretty good life, that he's kept all the commandments since his youth. And so I think that when the rich man is coming before Jesus, he just wants to know, he's worried, and he just wants to know, what else is there that I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus' answer shocks him and makes him sad. I don't think Jesus is answering and telling him that he has to sell all his possessions to spite him because our passage says Jesus looks at the rich man and says that Jesus loved him. I think Jesus looks at this rich man and genuinely wants him to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus' response to him is, a, is out of love. It's out of a desire for this man to be able to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus wants this man to enter, and so Jesus says his response, which is, you have to sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Now, as a slight tangent, I think this rich man is a good model for us. Because, honestly speaking, all of us in this room are relatively wealthy. Now, some of you might be thinking, I'm not rich. You know, I, I barely have enough to get by paycheck to paycheck. It's a real struggle in my life to make enough money to, to make it through, right? But I did, I did a little bit of research, and I found this one website that calculated what, percentage, what percentile you are in the world in terms of wealth based on your annual salary. But the cool thing about this website is it didn't just look at your annual salary. It also looked at um, the cost of living in the country that you're in, how big your family size is. So it basically took into account all these factors to de define how wealthy you are in terms of how much you make and how much buying power you have each year. And what I found in this website is if to be in the top 25% of the world, the richest 25%, if you're single, you have to make $5,350 after taxes per year. And if you're a family of four, you have to make $4,000. 
$14,000 and $400 after taxes per year. Now, I, I, know that, I know that life is a struggle for many of us, and many of us are struggling even to find a job. But these numbers are below minimum wage, and so I, I think I can say with some confidence that most of you, most of us, fall into the richest 25% of the world in terms of wealth. If we go to the richest 5%, to be in the richest 5% of the world, taking into account cost of living, taking into account how much things cost in the US, if you're single, you'd have to make $25,800 after taxes per year. And if you're a family of four, your household would have to make $70,000 after taxes per year. And I know this doesn't apply to all of us, but I suspect that many of us likely fall into the richest 5% of the world. And so I think that the rich man and us have a lot in common. Compared to the rest of the world, we have wealth. And also, like the rich man, we want to know what we have to do to inherit the kingdom of God. And so what's Jesus' answer to the rich man? He says, you have to go and sell everything, give to the poor, and come follow me. And the rich man is saddened because it's something that he can't do. But you know, the original Greek words for the rich man's response, not only do they have a connotation of sadness, they also have a connotation of being appalled, being distressed, or even perhaps with a little bit of anger. So you can picture this rich man. He's going up to Jesus, and he thinks that he's mostly doing okay. He's, relative, he's generally a good person. And he's probably thinking, you know, he's probably worried because he, he wants to make sure that he's going to inherit the kingdom of God. But he's probably relatively confident that whatever Jesus says, it's probably not that big of a deal compared to all that he's already done. It's probably something small, right? And given his means, given his resources, it's probably something that he can handle. And so Jesus' answer is shocking to him, just like it's shocking to us. If Jesus told us directly, you have to sell everything you have and give to the poor, I think that would be shocking to all of us. It'd be shocking to me. And so we have to ask, why did Jesus respond to the rich man in this way? And we have to ask, is Jesus asking the same of us? Is he asking us to sell everything that we have, give to the poor, in order to enter the kingdom of God? This is a really difficult question. And I think to answer this question, we have to go back and remember that the values of the kingdom of God are upside down. That to enter the kingdom of God, we have to become like servants. We have to become like slaves. We have to lower ourselves in our, in our standing before God and before each other. And so I think the reason why Jesus tells this man that he has to sell everything and give to the poor to enter the kingdom of God is because the security of his riches the security of his wealth, the security of his status, is what is preventing him from becoming a slave, from becoming a servant, from becoming like a child. And so the challenge for us, perhaps is an even more difficult one than selling everything that we have and giving to the poor. The challenge for us is, what is preventing us from lowering ourselves to becoming a servant, 
What is preventing us ourselves from lowering ourselves to becoming a slave or a child? Maybe like the rich man, it is our wealth, right? Maybe the security of our wealth is preventing us from serving and loving those around us like a servant. Maybe for some of us, it's our sense of pride and self-sufficiency, our sense that we know what is best for us. We, we know what the best path is for us. We know what the best path is for our kids and our family. And a refusal to go and do things that are beneath us in order to love others and love God. Or maybe it's, like Jesus says later, maybe it's our familial expectations. Maybe it's what our parents have, you know, what, what the expectations that our parents have for us. Or maybe it's the expectations that we have for our kids in terms of what we want them to do and how we're training them to go in terms of pursuit of various things in life. Maybe it's the familial expectations that we have which are preventing us from becoming a servant, from becoming a slave, from becoming a child. The challenge of entering the kingdom of God is huge. The cost of entering the kingdom of God is absolute. And it's extremely sobering. We may not be called to sell everything we have and give to the poor like this rich man was called to do. I don't think that Jesus' command to this rich man was normative in that way. But I think we're all called to not hold our wealth so tightly that it prevents us from becoming a servant. We're called not to hold on to our social standing so tightly that it prevents us from doing tasks and, and roles and services that are that we might think are beneath us. We're, we're called to not, um, not uh, follow familiar expectation so strongly such that it prevents us from loving the way that Jesus loved. And so the cost of entering the kingdom of God is absolute. And, and so... And so it's a difficult calling. And Jesus acknowledges that it's a difficult calling, right? Because he says, it's easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus picks one of the biggest animals around in the Middle East, and he picks one of the smallest openings that exists to metaphorically describe how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's some commentators who try to soften this a little bit, right? They'll try to say, well, the eye of a needle isn't talking about the literal eye of a needle. They'll say there was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of a needle gate. And so it was a, it was a small gate, but, you know, they'll, they'll say that it, it was possible for a camel to crouch down and kind of slowly inch their way through that gate and make it through. And so what Jesus is saying is not really that it's impossible, but just that it's really, really hard. But... There's really no evidence that any such gate existed in Jerusalem before the ninth century. And so I think we ha- in this case, what, how we understand what Jesus is saying is what Jesus was saying. That it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are d- equally dismayed by this, right? Because you remember... Being rich was kind of associated with divine favor. And so the disciples respond, if this rich man cannot get into the kingdom of God, how in the world can anyone get into the kingdom of God? If someone who has divine favor can't get into the kingdom of God, there's no hope for the rest of us 
Is there even hope for us as disciples who've given up everything in order to follow Jesus? And so here's where Jesus lays down the catch. Because Jesus says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. Jesus is not changing the cost of getting into the kingdom of God. The cost of entering the kingdom of God is still absolute. But what Jesus is saying is that what is impossible for us, for the rich man, is possible for God. It's possible for God in his incarnation to come to this earth, to die for our sins. It's possible for God to, and, to come into our hearts and transform our hearts so that we are willing to move past those obstacles that prevent us from becoming servants, that prevent us from becoming slaves or children. And so when, when faced with this demand that we have to become like servants, we shouldn't turn away depressed, appalled, or angry at what Jesus calls us to do, like the rich man. We need to continue to face Jesus. We need to continue to fall at his feet. We need to continue to call upon the mercy of God, the mercy of God who came and died for us on the cross, the mercy of God who became as us, who took on flesh in order to renew our sinful nature. We need to throw ourselves on that mercy and ask God to reveal our idols, to reveal what is preventing us from becoming a servant. And we need to ask God to transform us. Because the cost of entering the kingdom of God is absolute, and it's only possible with God. But the kingdom of God does come with great reward, as we see. Because what we see in our passage is when the disciples say that they've given up everything to follow Jesus, Jesus says that whatever they've given up, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, fields, that they'll receive a hundred times more. And the interesting thing about what Jesus says is that it's not just a hundred times more in the future. I mean, I think we all know that we want to get into the kingdom of God because we want to be in heaven and not be in eternal judgment. But what Jesus is saying is that they'll receive a hundred times more in this life as well as the coming age. So what is this reward that's this life? Is it a health and wealth gospel where, you know, if we, get, if we become like a servant, then God will bless us with health and bless us with wealth, like you often hear from many preachers around the world and in the United States? Well, I think Jesus makes it clear that that's not what he's talking about, right? Because he says anyone who gives up all those things will receive a hundred times more with persecution. So the type of blessing that Jesus is talking about is not health and wealth, because he's saying we're going to get blessing, but that blessing is going to come with persecution. I think what Jesus is talking about is the blessing that we get from giving up all those things is the blessing that we have of the community of the church. The blessing that we have, we may have to forsake our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, but we gain a hundred times more brothers and sisters and mothers in the community of the church. Now, take a look around you. 
take a look around you left and right. These are your brothers and sisters. These are your mothers. This is the blessing that God has given us in this life. And I think what the promise is, is that if we all, in our calling to God, are sacrificial, if we're all in our calling to God, servants and slaves to God and to one another, what we have in our community is a community of love, a community in which we support one another, a community in which we lift each other up, a community that enables us to be richer than we could ever possibly imagine from material wealth. Because in the end, the values of the kingdom of God are upside down from the values of this world. And the cost of discipleship is absolute, only possible with God. But in entering the kingdom of God and in giving up all those things to become like servants, we gain an even greater reward here in this present age with each other and in the age to come. And so as we think about what it means, to, what that absolute cost means, what it means to give up everything, we have no better model than Jesus. We read in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, this description of Jesus, that Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is our model for what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. And if Jesus is our master, and if we are following Jesus, then in following Jesus' model, we do give up everything in order to become a servant, in order to become a slave towards one another, in love and in compassion. It's a difficult calling. But to enter the kingdom of God, we have to give up everything and become servants towards one another. So let's pray. God, we confess that we fall so short of who you call us to be as your people in holiness, in love, in charity, and in service. And yet, God, we know that we have this promise that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And so, God, we cling to this hope that you are working in our hearts, that what is impossible for man is possible with you. And so we pray, God, that you would challenge us, that you would reveal to us those areas that we hold, that we cling to, that we grasp so tightly because we are looking to those for security. We are looking for, to those for comfort. We are looking to those for joy. And we pray that you would teach us how to loosen our grip on those things and to look towards you, to loosen those grip on those things and to be willing to use all that you have given us, not for our own pleasure, not for our own uh, benefit, but to use all that you have given us in service of those around us. So God, help us to grow in this Help us to be convicted in who you call us to be as your people individually and as a church. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.